Go ahead and take your seats and open back up to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to continue this week where we left off last week looking at the Lord's Prayer, this, this model prayer that Jesus gave to His disciples to instruct them how to pray. To instruct them that there is hope for growth in prayer, in, in meeting with God. And, and we're taking this extended look at this, this small passage of Scripture in order that we too might grow in our prayer lives. It can't be overstated how vital, how critically important it is that we experience meaningful communion with God. That's what we're after. Intimate fellowship with God. And, and that is what prayer is. Prayer is a meeting between us and the Lord where we gain His ear. We, we get to call out to Him with confidence that He hears us. And it changes us. It, it, it draws us near to Him. And He promises in His Word that when we draw near to Him, He draws near to us. That is why we ask Him, Lord, teach us. Teach us to pray. That's why we're looking at Jesus' pattern, his, his model prayer here again this morning. It's not, of course, it's not that God is looking for perfect prayers from us. I hope none of us have that idea that, that God is looking somehow for us to just execute this perfect prayer when we come before Him. It's, it's not that at all. Rather, God wants us to come as humble children. But He does want us to grow. He does want to transform our prayer lives so that we could be more mature in the way that we pray, so that we could align our hearts more with the Word of God, with how Jesus teaches us to pray. That is what we're after. And so just like the original disciples requested to Jesus in Luke chapter 11, Lord, teach us to pray, we ask again the same thing this morning. Lord, teach us from Your Word how to pray. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, he's in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, gives this pattern. It's not a script we said, it's not a formula, it's a pattern, it's a model for how to pray. He says in verse 9, pray then like this. Let's read the prayer again together. Jesus says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. For, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When you pray, Jesus says, pray like this. Pray like this. And we saw that as He instructs us in this, in this model prayer, we, we broke it down into three sections. We, we said that Jesus is telling us to proceed as children, to prioritize His glory, and now this week, to present our needs. In verses 9 and 10 last week, we saw that Jesus says, proceed as children. He says, when you come to God, call out our Father, our Father in heaven. Enter into prayer as humble children of the sovereign King who reigns over the whole universe. Get low before Him and yet come with confidence, knowing that He hears you and He can answer your prayers. Next, we saw that Jesus encourages us in the first three petitions of this prayer. There's six in all. The first three, he says, prioritize God's glory. First and foremost, 
Make sure that, that your focus is on God and His glory. So as we begin to make our request to God, we say, hallowed be your name. Asking Him to exalt Himself in us and in the world. We say, your kingdom come. We, we ask Him to advance His kingdom, both now in human hearts and then finally on that day when Jesus returns to establish His kingdom for all eternity. And then Jesus says, pray this, pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ask Him to accomplish all of His good purposes. Ask Him to help us to live in the way that He calls us to live according to His will. Prioritize His glory. And then there's a transition. It's, it's quite clear, you see, your kingdom come. Hallowed be your name. Your will be done. And then, and then now, as we enter into the second half of the prayer in verse 11, we see a shift here in focus. Not that God is no longer at the center of our prayers. God is always at the center of our prayers. But the, the kinds of requests change here. And we see our needs coming to the forefront. And Jesus gives us three types of needs. Three ways to come and make requests before our Heavenly Father. I want to remind us this morning of the application from last week that was so helpful. We, we, we heard these words, as we approach Jesus' teaching on prayer, we should ask ourselves, how did Jesus' words correct any bad prayer habits that I've developed? Think about that this morning as we, we're looking at the rest of the Lord's Prayer. How, how does this correct any bad habits in prayer that we may have developed? And then secondly, how is Jesus changing and challenging my prayer life by inviting me to enter into a more God-glorifying pattern of prayer. God has designed us in such a way that we must constantly rely on Him. This is who we are. A needy and dependent people. So Jesus says, when you pray, ask for help. Ask your Heavenly Father for help. And don't just ask for yourself. Ask for us. Remember the, the plurality of this prayer. Remember the us, the our, the we. Jesus says don't be self-centered in your prayers. Pray in community. And pray asking for God's help. Present your needs to your Father. What we're going to see this morning is that we are needy, we are guilty, we are weak. And without acknowledging these in prayer, we, we cannot pray as we ought. We cannot pray this prayer, the prayer that Jesus tells us we ought to pray. We need His help. We could never, ever do it on our own. First, see this. When you pray, pray for our Father's gifts. Pray for our Father's gifts. Again, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus teaches us here that as a regular pattern in our prayers, we need to pray for our basic everyday needs. We need to ask God to provide what we need to sustain our very lives. And in doing this, we realize and we acknowledge that we only have what we have because God gives it to us. You realize that this morning? 
Everything that you have, you have only because God has been gracious to gift it to you. Those necessities which are needed for sustenance and preservation of life, they they don't just come from nowhere. They're not automatic. God is the one who provides every bite of food. God is the one who gives every drink of water, every breath that we take, every bit of warmth and shelter. All of these things come from His fatherly care. So we pray as dependent children. Really, we, we pray as those who are recognizing ourselves to be merely beggars in the hands of a king who, who is taking care of us. God shows great benevolence to each and every one of His children. And Jesus says we need to pray accordingly. Father, it's, it's You who provide for every one of my needs. In, in praying this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, we acknowledge several realities. As we've seen, we, we acknowledge that we're not the ones who ultimately provide for ourselves. You know, God, God establishes means for provision, right? We, we, we're told in the Bible that if we don't work, we should not eat. So this isn't a prayer to say, well, let me just be lazy and sit back and God, you just provide for me these gifts apart from my responsibilities. That's, that's not at all what we're praying. But we are acknowledging even the very paychecks that we receive in order to pay for the food that we eat is a gracious gift from the hand of God. We're reminded in this prayer to acknowledge that we need His provision each and every day. It's interesting that in this really succinct prayer, you know, Jesus is not wasting any words here, right? But look, at twice, twice in verse 11, He says, this day and then our daily bread. He, he really wants us to see that our daily dependence must be on our Heavenly Father. Not a moment goes by in our lives when we don't need His help. This this prayer teaches us to remember that we are not entitled. We don't deserve the gifts that God gives to us and we cannot take for granted that He continues over and over to provide for our every need. We need to acknowledge in in praying this prayer that we ought to be a thankful people. Something else that's interesting about this prayer is nowhere in this prayer do we see the word thanksgiving. Jesus doesn't explicitly tell us to give thanks to God, but here's what I would argue that it is implied everywhere throughout this prayer that we ought to be a thankful people. When we come into His presence in prayer, we, we have every reason to give thanks. Our Father in heaven, thank you God that you're my Father. Thank you that you've adopted me into your family. Thank you that I can depend on you, the, the omnipotent, all-powerful God, to do everything you say you will do. Thank you, God, that you are exalting your name. Thank you, God, that your kingdom is reigning in my heart and will reign again in the future forever. Thank you, God, that your will is the best will and that you reveal your will to me in your word. Thank you, God, for working out your will in my life. Thank you, God, for providing my daily needs. See how thanksgiving has to be birthed out of this prayer? And asking God for our daily bread certainly must 
make us a thankful people. This prayer also causes us to acknowledge that God can provide for our every need even when we have absolutely no idea how He's going to do it. Perhaps there's someone in this room this morning who is really struggling even to know where the next paycheck is going to come from or where the next, even the next meal or maybe tomorrow's meals are going to come from. Jesus teaches us in this prayer to ask God to provide for us. Believing that He can do it. Even when we have no idea how. That He can cause a knock on the door or our phone to ring saying, I want to bring you some food today. Have you ever experienced that? Just not knowing where your provision is going to come from and then all of a sudden, God makes it happen in, in His providence, in His benevolence. He provides for you in ways never expected. Jesus says it's not a problem that God cannot handle. So ask Him. Ask Him to provide for your every need. Praying, give us this day our daily bread causes us to acknowledge we're not the only one. There are others who need this prayer too and so we ought to pray for one another and for our brothers and sisters across the world that God would provide daily bread for all of us. Lastly, this prayer, on my list anyways, I, this could very well go further than this, but lastly on my list of what we must acknowledge when we pray for our daily bread is that just as much as we have physical needs, we have even greater spiritual needs. Our hunger, our, our bodily hunger, is a constant reminder to us that we need something that comes from outside of ourselves. The Bible uses all kinds of word pictures and, and metaphors to show us, to convey to us that there is a spiritual hunger in our souls. Jesus, just a few chapters earlier in Matthew, in chapter 4, says these words, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so as we pray for our daily bread, we can be reminded that we need the bread of God's Word to sustain our souls, to feed our hungry hearts. Jesus also said something else about bread, you might remember, after He fed the, the 5,000. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. In including this petition in His model prayer for us, Jesus is instructing us that, that as we regularly pray to God asking for our daily bread, that we are never to lose sight of Him, of Jesus. So, as you're asking God to transform your prayer life, pray for our Father's good gifts recognizing that you are constantly dependent on Him. That's our first point this morning. Pray for our Father's gifts. 
Second, Jesus says, when you pray, pray for our Father's grace. Pray for our Father's grace. Verse 12 says, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here we see that forgiveness is to our souls what bread is to our bodies. We are in desperate need of constant forgiveness. Here we see that this could not have been a prayer that Jesus himself prayed. This is what he tells us to pray. Jesus needed no forgiveness. He lived a sinless life. But but we are not like Jesus in that way. The rebellious nature of our old man continues to wage war within us. Even though we hate it, we daily continue to behave as children who want our name and our rule and our will. We continue to sin. The Bible uses various words to talk about sin, trespasses, transgressions, wickedness. The Bible talks about missing the mark, falling short, going off the way. Evil, wickedness. Here, in this prayer, Jesus uses the word debt. Our sin leaves us indebted to God, deserving a penalty that none of us could ever or would ever want to pay. So Jesus tells us, make it a regular pattern in your praying to ask God for forgiveness. Now, it's important that we see here that there are different kinds of forgiveness with God. There's different kinds of forgiveness talked about in the Bible. We need to think of forgiveness in at least a couple of different ways. And and here, in this prayer, it is a certain kind of forgiveness. It is not the kind of forgiveness that we associate with salvation. It is not the once-for-all-time forgiveness. There are some here this morning who need this once-for-all-time forgiveness. You've never come to God with repentance where, where you have fallen on your knees before Him asking Him, would you forgive all my sins, past, present, and future? Would, would you count what Jesus did that day to my account? Would you, would you graciously Wipe away my certificate of debt. Would you nail it to the cross? There are some here this morning that need to come to the Father for that kind of forgiveness. The Bible says that if you don't, you are merely storing up debt upon debt upon debt. You're storing up wrath, it says, for the day of judgment where every single person will stand before God on that day and give an account for our lives on this earth. And apart from Jesus Christ, apart from faith in His substitutionary sacrifice, there's no hope for any one of us. We could never satisfy the righteous requirements of God's law. We could never live for Him the way He calls us to live for Him. We could never worship Him. We could never stay away from sin. But the Bible also says there's good news. There's good news. Jesus came to pay the penalty for sin. Jesus came so that we would not have to be judged according to our sins. He came to pay the penalty for us. 
He who knew no sin, the Bible says, came to be sin so that we might know the righteousness of God. The Bible says you can, you can come and, and you can ask God, forgive me for my sins. For all time. One forgiveness declared innocent forever. That's positional forgiveness. This is the kind of forgiveness that enables one to be adopted into the family of God, to be called a child of God, to be able to pray, Our Father. And yet in the midst of this prayer, after we call God our Father, there's another kind of forgiveness that we must ask for. This is a repeated forgiveness. A forgiveness that restores the brokenness of a relationship that already exists between a father and son. Think of it maybe this way. Think of the the son who's old enough to be left alone at home by himself and yet not old enough yet to have a proper license to drive the car. But, you know, mom and dad are out and there's the keys hanging there and so there's opportunity. They'll never know. I'll just go for a quick spin around the neighborhood. So the son takes the keys and he goes out into the driveway and he takes the car and he takes this, what's supposed to be just a meaningless, you know, innocent little ride around the block. And what he doesn't know is mom and dad happen to be driving by at just the right time to see everything that's going on. And not only that, he happens to uh, scrape the car. You know, maybe just a little scrape on the side bumper there. And he gets home and checks it out and he thinks, okay, they're not going to notice. It's not too bad. And I'll just park the car right in the exact same spot and I'll put the keys back right where they left them and they'll never know. And then mom and dad come home and happen to see the scrape as well on, on their way up to the door and they walk in and I say, hey son, how's it going? Good, good. Any, any, uh, anything eventful happen this evening? No, nothing. Just reading my Bible. <laughs> okay. All right. You want to hang out? Yeah, okay, let's hang out. And there's a tension there, right? The father knows what the son did. The son knows what the son did, but doesn't know that the father knows. Anything you want to talk about, son? No. Nope. All right. Next morning, hey, hey, I noticed there's a scrape in the car. Did any, you know anything about that? No. Right, the relationship can't go on as normal, right? There's a brokenness there that needs to be restored. The father didn't cease to be the father. The son is still the son. The father still loves the son forever. And yet there's an offense that needs to be dealt with. There needs to be a restored fellowship that can only come with confession of sin to restore the deep and abiding relationship that ought to be there between father and son. You know, when we come to God in prayer with unconfessed sin and we refuse to say the same thing about our sin that God is saying about our sin, we're like the Israelites. We're like the Israelites whom the prophet Isaiah said, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. 
That's, that's not what we want in prayer. That's, that's not our desire. That's not God's desire for us when we come to have a meaningful encounter with Him. Rather, Jesus says, seek His pardon. And He's gracious to forgive. Nehemiah 9 verse 17 says, You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. What a promise. What a promise. You know, as I prayed this prayer this week and considered Jesus' instruction for me to come to God and say, God, forgive us our debts. I couldn't help but think of Romans chapter 5 where, where Paul just proclaims where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds all the more. Praise God. There's no sin big enough that God can't forgive. There's nothing we could ever come and bring before the Father's throne asking Him to pardon our iniquities that He's going to say, no, I, I can't do it. It's too much. God's grace abounds all the more. What, what hope this produces in us and in our prayers. No more guilt. No, no more brokenness between us and the Father. Always full restoration available. Reconciliation available each and every day when we repent. Some of us don't include regular confession of sin in our prayers. And the Bible says if that is you, then you are deceived. Look at 1 John 1 up on the screen behind me. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can't say we have not sinned. That, that would be so foolish. We, we can't pray as if we, you know, we really don't sin anymore. You know, when we have that attitude in prayer, we're, we're taking the Gospel of Jesus Christ for granted. It's as if we're saying, you know, Jesus paid the penalty for sin on the cross, but it was a lot more needed for other people than for me. You know, if, if it was my sins alone He was paying for, He really wouldn't have had to be up there the, that whole three hours. You see how we think about the Gospel when we're not confessing our sin on a regular basis? Like, we, did, we didn't really need the agony that Jesus had to pay in our place. But we did need it. Our sins are many. Daily we continue to walk in our own way in opposition to God's way. And we need Him to cleanse us. And Jesus tells us, pray for that. Pray for that. We can't have a vibrant prayer life without seeking God's grace in regular, ongoing forgiveness. There may be some who, it's been a while since you've said, God, would you forgive me for? Maybe you don't think there's anything that you have to pray that prayer about. And, and I just, I hope you're seeing here this morning that, that that is not a good way to approach God in prayer. 
I read a quote from Andrew Murray this week talking about the one who, who believes that they don't have to deal with their ongoing sin before God, where he encouraged such a one to, to say these words, I am convinced that my unsatisfactory prayer life is to be attributed to nothing else than that I have not lived with a wholehearted surrender of all on earth that could hinder my fellowship with God. We must surrender it all. We must come to Him asking Him, God, would, would You forgive me for those faults that I know about, those presumptuous sins, and also for those ones that I don't even know? The unknown sins. Those idols in my heart that need smashing. God, would, would You show me what those are so that I can also confess those to You so that our communion in prayer would grow to be even more sweet. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Our supreme desire should be to have a right relationship with God. To know Him. To have uninterrupted fellowship and communion with Him. That's why we pray this prayer. That's why we pray, forgive us our debt. So that nothing would be between us and God. And the brightness and the radiance and the glory of our Father would be seen in greater and greater ways to us. Father, forgive us our debts. And then the rest of the verse says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here we see that our obligation to forgive others in the same way that we've been forgiven by God is again, just as it is throughout Scripture, seen to have a direct correlation one with another. Jesus emphasizes multiple times throughout His ministry the necessity of us to be a forgiving people if we want to expect that God is going to forgive us of our sins. So He includes this in His model prayer for us. Again, we need to be mindful of the differing kinds of forgiveness. On the one hand, one of the greatest evidences that any one of us has truly received the saving, once for all time, forgiving grace of God is that we're now a forgiving person. One way to to know if we've experienced God's forgiveness is to examine our own lives to see, have, have we become the kind of person who extends forgiveness to others? Because we know how much our Father has forgiven us. One writer said it's impossible to experience the richness of God's grace and yet remain stubborn, obstinate, and cold-hearted towards other people when they sin against us and ask for our forgiveness. Those who truly know forgiveness of sins forgive others. And yet even if we are a genuine disciple of Christ, if we're refusing to forgive another's debt that that they owe to us, we simply just cannot expect that God will allow us to enjoy the blessing of ongoing fellowship with Him. That we would enjoy that repeated cleansing from sin that He offers to us. Now we need to remember that the forgiveness God extends to us in cleansing us daily from sin doesn't come because 
we forgive other people. It's purely an act of God's mercy and grace that he would do this for us, and yet we can't expect that he will. The word of God tells us if we won't forgive others. Jesus finds it necessary to to provide further explanation. Look down at verse 14. Jesus knows this is going to be something we need to think a little bit further about. What does he say? He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. God's words, right? God's words. None of us, none of us can actually forgive like God forgives. That's too high for us to attain. But, but Jesus says our aspiration, the desire of our hearts, needs to be ready and willing and desiring to extend forgiveness to those who have trespassed against us. And when we struggle with that, really what we're doing is, is we are thinking too little of the weight of our own sin before God. When we withhold forgiveness from another, we are forgetting, simply forgetting, that the debt we owe God is in the billions upon billions upon billions, and we could never pay it, and the offense before Him is infinitely greater than any offense that anyone could ever incur toward us on this earth. Jesus tells a whole parable of of the unforgiving servant. And here in this prayer, he says, don't be that unforgiving servant and expect that you can draw near to God in prayer and experience meaningful communion with Him. Rather, forgive others and ask your Heavenly Father to continue to forgive you. Next, Jesus says, when you pray, Pray for our Father's guard. Pray for our Father's guard. We move here from sin's past to sin's future. We move from forgive us to deliver us. Verse 13 says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here in this final plea, We're asking God again to do what we could never ever do on our own. We can't resist in our own power. We need our Father's help. We need Him to guard us from sin and wickedness. Jesus here is simply saying, acknowledge your weakness. Acknowledge your weakness before the Father. The appeal of sin is both prevalent and dangerous. And so you must keep this as a regular pattern of your daily prayers. If you think you're immune to temptation, the Bible says you're in a really close place to falling. Sin is a real threat. And we all, we need God's help and we need to pray for ourselves and for others that God would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need to pray This prayer both generally and specifically. And here's what I mean by that. We need to pray just overall, God, keep my heart from going down the path of sin. God, deliver me from evil's temptations. And then we also need to name that sin. 
name that sin in our lives that we have a propensity toward and, and say, God, help me with that sin in particular. Now, some of you might be thinking, doesn't God test us? Doesn't the Bible say, and don't we experience that God ordains trials in our lives? So why would we be then taught to pray that this wouldn't happen? Well, here, this is what's going on here. There's a difference between trials and temptation. Al Mohler has a helpful explanation of this. I'm going to put it up for you guys to see. It says, we can often confuse God's test with temptations because our hearts often use difficult circumstances as an excuse for sinful behavior. A test is a trying circumstance or a difficult situation orchestrated in our lives by God. A temptation, however, is an invitation to sin. An encouragement to engage in something contrary to God's law God certainly tests us, but He never tempts us. James 1.13 says, God doesn't tempt anyone. God would never entice us to do wrong. Say, okay, then, then why pray this then? Maybe that's where your mind goes. Others have asked the same question. This, this wording here can be a little bit tricky. Lead us not into temptation. Why do we pray this prayer? Because we're prone to wander. That's why. We're, we're prone to go down the path where we're carried away by our own sinful desires. And we need to pray that God would lead us not into temptation. What, what, what does it mean to, to be led not into? To be led away from, right? To be led away from. That's the opposite of not well, that is what it means, not into. God, lead us away from temptation is what we're asking. We, we see this is the, the meaning here because there's a parallelism going on in verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but what deliver us from evil. That informs our understanding of what temptation is here in this verse. And when Jesus says, deliver us from evil, some of your translations might say, the evil one. Either, either translation is, is appropriate. It, it may be that Jesus is here speaking of Satan himself. The deceiver. The liar. The adversary. The tempter. The enemy of our souls. The prince of the power of the air we saw earlier in the book of Ephesians. Deliver us. From the evil one. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Peter says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There are external forces of wickedness fighting against us each and every day. Laying out traps for our downfall. And Jesus says pray that you would not be held in the clutches of evil's grasp. Ask your heavenly Father to lead you away from temptation to sin and from evil. We're involved in kingdom warfare. And what's our greatest defense? It's prayer. It's prayer. It's asking the Lord to do what we sang about over and over this morning. I don't know if you noticed that. 
fighting our battles. We're, we're praying that God would intervene and protect us and guard us. I was reading Psalm 25 this morning. In Psalm 25, David says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord. Sounds like prayer, doesn't it? My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. You know, if you knew that when you walked out of here this morning, when you, when you picked up your kids, if you have kids, or if, if, if it's you just walking out those front doors this morning would be walking right in to the crossfires of warfare, that would change the way you walk out those doors, wouldn't it? You'd be praying, God, protect me, guard me. If you knew as you drove down the street that, that at any moment, the ground beneath could give way because some enemy has come and, and dug out a trap ahead of you for your destruction. You'd pray all the while, God, lead me away. Lead me away from those things. If you knew that half the people you talked to out there in the world were crafting deceitful schemes to trick you and to take you down, you would pray, God, guard me from following down the wrong path. This ought to be the way we pray as a regular pattern in our prayer lives. God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God does ordain trials in our lives. But He tells us in His Word, He does never ordain such a trial that we have no choice but to choose sin. God, help us. Help us to choose sin righteousness that ought to be our normal prayer we must pray that our father would guard us we must pray for our father's grace we must pray for our father's gifts when we don't pray like this when we don't pray the way in the manner that that jesus teaches us to pray in these three requests Really what we're saying is I I can take care of myself. I don't sin anymore and really I'm not sure I ever will sin again in the future. Our greatest need, our greatest need in this life, all of our greatest needs are represented in this prayer. Right here in these simple words, Jesus says, pray like this. Pray to your gracious, loving Father who says, come to me. Come to me and present your request because I delight to care for my children. May we come as children to our generous Father presenting our needs as we prioritize His glory. And may the Lord continually teach us to pray so that we would be transformed in the way that we commune with Him daily. Now there is a textual issue here to deal with in verse 13. In some of your Bibles you'll see either a footnote or square brackets around a text or maybe neither of those things. You just see the prayer continuing. Here's what the footnote in the ESV says. It says that some manuscripts add these words. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And this is what we call a textual variant. There is uncertainty as to whether or not 
these words were part of the original words spoken by Jesus and, and or recorded by Matthew. The manuscript evidence supports either side of the debate, should this or should this not be included in the actual text of God's word. The ESV, those who worked on the ESV believe that it wasn't in the best and most reliable manuscripts. Others disagree, and that's okay, and here's why, because these words are thoroughly biblical. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen? Amen. So we can pray this as well. This needs to reflect our heart, whether, whether it was originally written or not. This needs to be our heart as we come to God in prayer. Yours alone, O oh God, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We need to give glory to the Father to whom we can continually come and enjoy the blessing of prayer's intimate fellowship. Furthermore, we need to say glory be to the Son, the One who gave us this prayer, and not only gave us this prayer, but made it possible for us to pray this prayer. When Jesus paid the ransom price for our redemption, He did it at the cost of His own life. He endured the wrath that we deserved. And we're told later on in Matthew's Gospel that when Jesus paid the penalty for our redemption, that the curtain of the temple was literally torn in half. That represents that the separation between men and God is no more. It's gone. It's done away with by Jesus' saving work on the cross. Jesus opened up a way for us to come near to the Father. Praise the name of Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus is where our hearts ought to go when we read a prayer and when we pray a prayer like this. Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. <laughs> Wonderful words. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And let us, listen to this brothers and sisters, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's many ways that we can encourage one another and one of them is to draw near to God together. We're going to do that this morning. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and they're going to begin to play over us. But what I'm going to invite all of us to do now is just to spend a few minutes in prayer. That is, I believe, the, the only way we can end these two weeks looking at the Lord's Prayer by just bowing low before God. And, and you can either do this on your own or even with those around you. 
Let us spend a few minutes here calling out to God after this pattern that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 6. Keep your Bibles open. Pray over these prayer requests. Call out to our Father in heaven. And then we'll stand and join together and draw near to Him by worshiping the Son of God who gave us this prayer and who made it possible that we could even pray at all.